0: Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. May this word of the Lord unite us as a church, and make us bold as missionaries. And be seated. Thanks, Mark. Well,
1: Angela Duckworth is a very impressive person. Some of you are familiar, perhaps, with her name. Um, but in her late 20s, she was working for a consulting firm and left that very successful and kind of lucrative role as a consultant to start teaching math with seventh graders. And so she did that for a few years and was really intrigued by the ones who did well and those who didn't. And she thought, you know what? I want to actually kind of understand success better and why certain people succeed at certain things and other people don't. And so she decided to go to the University of Pennsylvania to pursue a PhD in psychology. And so she went there and as she was doing her research, um, they, she, she decided to go to West Point to interview a bunch of cadets. Uh, They looked at a bunch of kids that were involved in the National uh, Spelling Bee. Um, They looked at teachers in tough neighborhoods. They looked at salespeople from all different kinds of corporations. And they were asking, she was asking as she was going through this, is there anything that we can use to kind of predict whether they'll be successful? It's hard to be a kid at West Point. It's, it's hard to win the National Spelling Bee or to even go far in that. It's hard to teach in an underserved and under-resourced community. It's, it's hard sometimes for salespeople to really rise above other people in their industry. And so she was saying, is there anything that, that we could see that would predict success? And they found something, and here's what she says about it. She says, in all those different contexts... One characteristic emerged as a significant predictor of success. And it wasn't social intelligence. It wasn't good looks, physical health, and it wasn't IQ. It was grit. Grit is passion and perseverance for very long-term goals. Grit is having stamina. Grit is sticking with your future day in, day out, not just for the week, not just for the month, but for years, and working really hard to make that future a reality. Grit is living like it's a marathon, not a sprint. Over 10 million people have watched her TED Talk about this, by the way, so apparently that message is resonating with people, and I think it's because we know we need grit. One of the things I know as a dad that I'm trying to instill in my kids, even if I wouldn't have used the word before kind of hearing her talk and reading some of her stuff about it, but I know I want to instill in my kids grit. I want them to be tough. I want them to keep going. I want them to be passionate. I don't want them to just be kind of onto this one day, onto this the next day. I want them to keep going in a lot of different ways, and I want to be a person like that. And in fact, a number of weeks ago in one of uh, our sermons, Josh Watt was preaching and he said that one of the things that we need, one of the things that we see all throughout the book of Acts is what he called gospel grit. So how do we get gospel grit? How can we be people who day in, day out, have stamina and passion and perseverance and all the things that she said. How can we live as though life's a marathon and not a sprint? Because I don't know about you, but to me, it often feels like life is a series of sprints, right? It's, okay, it's summer. We better have a lot of fun. Let's sprint till school starts and we sprint, right? And then school starts, wall break. All right, and then we sprint. And it's just this endless series of sprints, and we wonder why are we so tired? Why are we so worn out? And why are we so frazzled? And what if instead of just viewing it as a series of sprints, what if we were steady plotters, faithfully pursuing what we know God has called us to do, faithfully being his witnesses in our families, in our communities, in our world, faithfully honoring him in the big things and in the small things? That's who we want to be, isn't it? How do we develop that kind of grit? Where do we get it? Well, Acts 14 here today is going to tell us. Uh, Now, just to review kind of what we've been looking at, Acts 13 began this first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul and his companions Barnabas and a number of others. And so uh, here's a map showing you kind of where we're going to be today. So last week in Acts chapter 13, we looked at the red parts. And uh, this is This is modern-day Turkey, is what you kind of see there. And they started on the right. They sailed to Cyprus, kind of went through the island of Cyprus, sailed up into what is today modern-day Turkey, ended up in Antioch of Pisidia. That's the top uh, left kind of red dot there. And then where they're going to go today is kind of more interior in there. That's the blue dots. We're going to read that in just a moment. And then, when they finish that, they're going to essentially retrace their steps. If you go to the next slide, they'll retrace their steps and then sail back. So, all of that is what's happening here in Acts chapter 14. And it's quite a ride. <laughs> this is an incredible journey that they take. So, what I want to do this morning is I'm just going kind to of overview Acts 14. Uh, not go in-depth into every little piece of it, but just kind of get an overview because there's a lot of different elements of what happens here in this chapter. And then I want to ask the question about how do we get gospel grit? What, what does this show us related to that? All right, so the, the first section, verses one to seven of Acts 14, is really kind of a typical stop on the journey. They, they are now at Iconium, it says in verse one, and they enter into the Jewish synagogue and they speak in such a way that a great number of Jews And Greeks believed, right? This is a very common thing. We said this last week. Paul shows up at a place. He speaks in a synagogue. Some people believe. Some people don't. This is a very typical thing. This happened in chapter 13. It's going to happen a bunch throughout the rest of the book of Acts. (laughs) But Here's what it says in verse 2. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So that is the kind of opposition that's going to happen a lot. Again, this is just a typical journey for Paul. He's going to show up. He's going to preach. Some people are going to believe. And some people then are going to get really mad and oppose him. It says in verse 3, Paul and his companions, they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Right? So they're not just testifying to the good news of Jesus, but they're actually doing lots of good. Uh, These signs uh, that the kingdom of God has actually shown up are being evident. Verse 4, but the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. So, So this is not just like, hey, we showed up and some people became Christians and the other people didn't like us. And they called us names. And they made, like, stink-eye faces at us. <laughs> no, this is like they decided, let's figure out a way to kill them. Right, that's what it's talking about when it says to stone them. And the irony here is amazing because in Acts chapter 7 and 8, this same guy, Paul, is standing there, while the first Christian martyr Stephen is being stoned for his faith. So the one who was constantly persecuting Christians, very angry about this message, is now on the receiving end of that. And so off they go to Lystra and Derby. Now that whole first section is just a very typical thing. We're gonna see that pattern over and over and over. Now this next section, verses eight to 18, this is is kind of interesting. This is a unique story. This is a little bit more different. Here's what it says in verse eight. Now at Lystra... There was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. You've heard this before. This happened earlier in the book of Acts, a man sitting outside the temple who had never walked before. This man now in Lystra, total non-Christian, non-Jewish setting, it says, verse 9, he listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. By the way, that's a really bold thing to say. Like next time that you're around somebody who has not been able to walk since birth, I hope if you say to them, stand up, I hope you have the power to make them do it. Because otherwise that would be the worst thing you'll ever say to a person. And he sprang up, verse 10, and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, probably because Barnabas was older. Zeus was kind of the chief god of that area. And Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, who, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowd. So the, do you get what's going on here? This is amazing, right? They heal this guy, and actually the people in this area, there were a number of, of stories of where reportedly the gods had showed up as kind of unknown people. So they see this amazing work of power, this man who's never walked before in his life, and God heals him, and they go, oh my gosh, We're in the presence of Zeus and Hermes. Now, Paul and Barnabas don't know that's what's going on because it says there in verse 14, or I'm sorry, in verse, uh, what verse is it? It doesn't even matter now, but I got to find it. (laughs) Verse 11. (coughs) They said this in Lyconian, right? So they say the gods have come to visit us. They don't even know what they're talking about. Paul and Barnabas don't. And then all of a sudden, out trots out the oxen And the animals, and they're going to be sacrificed to, and that absolutely grieves them. It says in verse 14, But when the apostles heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. So this is an incredible thing. Paul, in Acts chapter 13, we saw this long thing where he explained all of the Bible story. Here, he knows they don't understand the Bible story. They've never heard of the Old Testament. They don't know who Yahweh is. He just says, hey, you're worshiping these worthless things. Worship the one true God who gave you rain and who made everything. You know him? Worship him, don't worship us. Even so, they're still just totally into him and they want to sacrifice to him. Now the next section in verses 19 to 23 Here's where we see some unbelievable grit. If you want to talk grit, here's some grit out of Paul. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And having persuaded the crowd, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. Get this. If we can put that map back up. Uh, <coughs> there's the two blue dots that are kind of bunched together there. The, the, the southern one is where they are right now at this point in the story. And what they're saying is that Jews have come from the previous two dots. They've traveled dozens of miles, maybe over 100 miles, to, to try to put him to death. They are very upset about this guy. Uh, this is the same thing that Paul used to do to Christians. And it says they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Just pause there for a second. What kind of shape does someone have to be in to where, when you've traveled over a hundred miles to kill them, and you go, he's gone, and you walk away and leave him? Like, this was not like he was like, oh, my shoulder. I mean, like, they thought he was dead, so he's unconscious, he's probably significantly disfigured, he's beaten to a pulp. Verse 20. <coughs> but when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. that's that next dot. So this is amazing. This is the same miraculous power that allows this man who had not walked since birth to stand is the same kind of miraculous power that allows Paul, who is basically as good as dead, to rise and to be able to move on. That's incredible grit. Verse 21 When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So did you get that? So they, they went to Derby, <clears throat> having kind of run for his life, and then decide you know what, let's retrace our steps and go back to the place where A, they tried to kill me and where the people who tried to kill me are from. Let's go back there. Why? Because we need to encourage the Christians. We're not done here. We've got to establish leaders there. We've got to encourage them. We have to let them know that God is bigger than the threats that we face. I mean, you want to talk about grit. That's gritty grit. And then the next part to finish the chapter, they travel back through these places. It says in verse 25, And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. This first journey is done. They're back In Antioch of Syria and there they're reporting to the people that had sent them out that had been praying for them that had been encouraging them and they are reporting all that God has done so here's something that I see in this in this passage is that Paul seems to have incredible grit in the face of both praise and persecution See, we know the threats of persecution, right? He is left for dead, and we can kind of imagine what it's like and, and how dangerous and how, how much you might begin to doubt God, how much you might begin to think, gosh, is God really for me when you experience the, the bad stuff? But one of the things that is equally dangerous to our faith is actually praise and success. Isn't that interesting? I mean, how many people, if uh, you showed up at a place and they wanted to treat you as a god... How many people would go, I could stay here for a while. This could be kind of fun. I mean, that's some power, isn't it? And so here's, here's the question. How do you keep going in the midst of both praise and persecution? <laughs> How do you keep going in the midst of praise and persecution? How do you get grit? Because here's the thing. Crowds are fickle. People are fickle. If you're living for the approval of people, how are, how are you going to go when you get just persecution? How are you going to go when you get praise? but then it runs out really quickly? Because people are fickle. One of my favorite examples of this is how the, the fans in Cleveland burned LeBron James' jersey after he left there the first time. Here's a picture of them burning his jersey, right? He, he had left, taken this uh, deal in Miami where he went on to win some NBA titles and whatever. And then after a number of years, he came back to Cleveland and I saw this picture, this next picture on Twitter, which is pretty funny, of a guy. Guy at an Indians game in Cleveland wearing the LeBron James jersey that he burnt at one point. That's living for the praise of men. One day they burn you, the next day they wear your burnt jersey, right? And if you get caught up in that, if you get caught up in the, oh, there's so much praise, it's so great, oh, there's so much persecution, it's so bad, you're going you're to lose your focus on, on, on faithfulness and on steady plotting. So how do we get gospel grit? I think there's three things we see in this passage. The first is this, is uh, gospel grit comes from relentless god centeredness relentless God-centeredness. The thing that drove Paul was the glory of God, not his glory. The thing that drove Paul was that they would know a living God. Do you see that in verses 15 to 17? Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things. That word vain means worthless, ineffective, empty. Turn from these vain things. You think we're Zeus and Hermes and these gods. These are empty gods. These are worthless gods. And listen, false gods never fail to fail. Paul says they're empty, they're worthless. Turn from them to a living God, the real God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Listen, he says, he allowed you all to walk in your own ways, but he didn't leave you without a witness. He did you good by giving you rains from heaven, fruitful season. He has provided for you. You know there is a God. The Psalms say the heavens declare the glory of God. Romans 1 says that God has revealed himself through the creation of what has been made. And Paul says, focus on God, don't focus on me. And then what allowed him to keep getting up? And what allowed him to say, you know what, rather than just hightailing it out of here, I'm done with this whole thing, I'm going to actually go back and continue to risk my life, what allowed him to do that is a focus on God. He knew what God had called him to do. His his life was not about him, and it was not about his comfort, and it was not about people liking and approving of him, it was about God. Do you know what the best-selling book, hardcover book, outside the Bible in all of human history is? The Purpose Driven Life. Here's how it opens by Rick Warren. He says, this is the first paragraph of the book, it's not about you. The purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment, your peace of mind, or even your happiness. It's far greater than your family, your career, or even your wildest dreams and ambitions. If you want to know why you were placed on this planet, you must begin with God." You were born by his purpose and for his purpose. Now I know a lot of Christians want to critique the purpose-driven life. That's a pretty good paragraph. I don't know if I I couldn't start a book better than that. Where do you get gospel grit is relentless God-centeredness. This means that we need to be people who live uh, what has been known throughout history as coram deo. Coram deo is a Latin phrase that means before the face of God before the face of God and the saints of old knew that all of life is lived before the face of God we live with an audience of one we have to pay attention what does God think what does God want what is God calling me to do that relentless God centeredness is a, is a life of Coram Deo the reality is many of us instead live a life of practical atheism we, we'd say we believe in God oh yeah I believe in God There's one God, maker of heaven and earth. And I believe in his son. I believe in his spirit. We say that, but oftentimes we live like practical atheists. We live as though God is not involved. God's not there. Coram Deo is what God calls us to. This is what all of life is all for Jesus is about. That's why we print it on t-shirts. That's why we hang it on banners. That's why we put it on screens. That's why I love it when people even make fun of me about it. Like, I know, I know it works because people will come up and say, I know all of life is all for Jesus. And I'm like, yes, they got it. They got it. Why do we say that? Because we want to be people of gospel grit. Where no matter what, there's this relentless focus on the glory of God and how he impacts all of our lives. And so you see, whether it's praise or persecution, he's focused on the glory of God. See, Paul knew that life was not like a TV dinner, but like a chicken pot pie. Some of you know what a TV dinner is? Kids, maybe you haven't seen this before. Good for you. Here's a, chicken, here's a TV dinner. Who's hungry? Yeah. Right? And, and the TV dinner, the idea was you could get this out of the freezer and you could microwave it. Some of you fathers are like, about three hours away from Salisbury's steak, baby. That's what I've been wanting, right? And so you got everything in, the, in, in here compartmentalized. You got our meat, doesn't touch our beans, doesn't touch our potatoes, doesn't touch whatever that thing in the middle is. <laughs> and that's how a lot of us want to think life is. You know what? I got my work over here, and I got my family over here, and I got my God over here, and I got my hobbies over here. And as long as I kind of do each of them fairly well, I can keep them compartmentalized, that's not a relentless God-centeredness. Rather, life ought to be more like a chicken pot pie. That looks pretty good, right? And in the chicken pot pie, it's all mixed up, it's all interwoven, it's all connected. And the thing that the gravy that holds it together is our relationship with God. If we want to be people of gospel grit, we need to be people with relentless God-centeredness. Second thing we need is clear expectations of the Christian life. One of the reasons perhaps we don't last or one of the reasons we go in sort of short spurts of faithfulness rather than the long, slow marathon of faith perhaps is because our expectations aren't clear. Maybe we think we've gotten into something that's different than what we actually have gotten into. Notice the expectations that the Apostle Paul gives to the people as he goes back to encourage them, in verse, beginning verse 21, look at, the, at that in 14:21. when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch strengthening the souls of the disciples. Now, what did he tell them? What what did he say? What was the message that, that encouraged them, that strengthened their souls? Encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So he's going back, right? And you can just imagine how hobbled he is. You can just imagine. And and all the early uh, writers who ever document what Paul looked like, it's never an impressive figure. Everyone describes him as a pretty short, kind of hunched guy with bow legs and a long nose. So he wasn't like in your 50 most beautiful people to begin with. And then after getting, you know, almost beaten to death, right, he's hobbling in there. And what's his message? He says, listen, you're new in the faith. Your love for Jesus is precious. You've turned from these worthless idols to serve the living God. Now here's what I want you to know and everyone's listening in and everyone's leaning in. What is he gonna tell us? And he does not say, I want you to live your best life now. Just be happy now. Just do what feels good as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. He doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, continue in the faith. Continue trusting Jesus. Continue trusting that God is for you. And know this, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul says, listen, you you need a clear expectation. If you're gonna be gritty, you gotta know what you're getting into. And you are getting into a life of tribulation and trouble and distress that ends in the kingdom of God. See, we want, give me the kingdom now. I don't want the path there. Paul says, no, that's that's how this goes. And somebody go, well, yeah, I mean, that's what Paul was called to. I mean, look at what Paul was called to, how God describes Paul's call in Acts 9. There it says this. But the Lord said to him, Go, for Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. There baked in to the commissioning of Paul. Is Paul, you're going to suffer for my name. You go, oh, oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But he was an apostle, right? They had, right? He had the power to heal people, but it also means he had to suffer a lot. Like, I'm just a normal person. So I'm off of this, right? This this was just to Paul. But look at all of these things that Jesus said in the Gospels. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus said to his disciples, Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And Luke, Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And John, Jesus said, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And a little bit later, he said this in John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. One of the best marriage books you could read is a book by Paul Tripp. Here's the title What Did You Expect? What Did You Expect? And, and that's the challenge in marriage that's the challenge when we start a new job. That's the challenge when we show up at a church that we're not familiar with or try to get involved. That's a challenge when we try to live a life of faithfulness. What do we expect? And here's what Paul's saying. You need to expect that this life is going to be hard. And it's going to be painful. And it's going to be tribulations. And it's going to have persecutions. This is one of the things that is so... Um, Amazing to me, as we all feel the kind of cultural shift under our feet, where Christianity, rather than feeling like the, a welcome thing in our culture, is is not welcome, and we all are like a little like panicky. Now, get this: Do I want religious freedom? Yes. Do I want the ability to express my faith safely and uh, protected by law? Absolutely. Is that incredibly important in the history of our country? Yes. But but do you see what he said? Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Which doesn't mean we go looking for beatings. Doesn't mean we go do stupid things and say stupid things to make people mistreat us. But it does mean we have to, as Christians, say, hey, listen, this is part of the deal. Uh, we have this saying in our house, and I, maybe I've told you about this, where... Um, we'll see our kids especially doing something that's kind of stupid like climbing up on an edge of a couch or something and we'll go hey predict the future <laughs> and that's our way of saying stop like predict the future what's going to happen well here, here Paul's saying hey predict the future the future is trouble The future is distress. The people is you're not, the the future is you're not going to be everyone's favorite if your ultimate centered loyalty is to God and his son Jesus. (coughs) Where do we get gospel grit? Third and finally, we get gospel grit from support from a community of grace. Support from a community of grace. We're going to throughout this book be looking at Paul's journeys and and so much of the time we're even going to say Paul's missionary journeys. And this is how this gets described. Well, Paul's first missionary journey and Paul's second missionary journey and Paul's third missionary journey and Paul, 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 Paul. You know what? It's never just Paul. It's always Paul and Barnabas or Paul and his companions or Paul and Luke and it's all these different people. It's never just Paul. You notice that actually when they get back, uh, to Antioch in verse 26, it, it describes Antioch this way. Antioch was where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. In Antioch, they were commended. They were saying, hey, listen, this was a work of grace. You, we sent you to do this. You've now done it. They were sent by that community. Paul, when he's left for dead, <coughs> what happens? Does he kind of lay out there in the middle of the, of the rocks and the dirt in this kind of epic movie moment that goes in slow-mo, oh, and he gets up. No, what does it say in verse 20? But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up. See, Paul's never alone. Paul's never on his own. He's sent by a community of grace. He's surrounded by a community of grace. He's sustained by a community of grace. People who know that life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Life does not consist in everyone's praise and approval. Life consists in knowing not the worthless idols, but the true and living God through Jesus Christ and the people who surround him and sustain him and nourish him and strengthen him and help him keep going. How will you have grit? You won't do it on your own. Listen, Lone Ranger Christians predict the future are defeated Christians. People oh, I had this great thing with God, but then I, you know, I found this church and I didn't really like, it. I found this church I didn't really like, and I found this church and didn't really fit, and so I just kind of quit going. And now... And then you go, how did I walk away from God? Let me tell you. Are you, are you a person that's looking for other people to surround and sustain and encourage and bless. This is why serving in groups and all the things we do in our church, but also outside of our church, you can find these same kinds of things, but you need a community of grace. (coughs) In closing, can you just imagine? What if as Christians, what if we were known for our grit? Oh man, no matter what, they're tough. They keep going. They're focused. They're passionate. You knock them down, they get back up. You put them in jail, they sing and convert the guards. That's what I want to be known as, as the people of God. Gritty, not so we get the glory, but so that God does. Let's pray.